Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists. This week's programme comes to you from two sides of the world, Perth in Western Australia and Cambridge in England. And here in Cambridge, we'll be discussing the first ever measurement of the magnetic field around a black hole. And what can David Beckham tell us about playing the piano? And here in Australia, how plants from South Africa are being used to improve some of the worst soils in the world and... We go fishing to see how climate change is affecting how fish breed in estuaries. Some black room here. Uh, we've also got the sea mullet, which some people like to eat as well. And then we've got a toadfish. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Hello, I'm Dominic Ford, and also joining me in Cambridge to take a look at the news headlines is Kate Lamble. Kate, what's caught your eye? I don't know whether you watch Time Team, but essentially Tony Robinson turns up in your back garden and finds a bit of a wall that's meant to be part of a 15th century monastery or something. But also, on a lot of those archaeological programmes, you see them uncovering skeletons, human remains from as far back as the Middle Ages and earlier. Now, if you've ever seen them uncover a skeleton, you see them sort of brushing away the soil, slowly uncovering the bones before lifting them out. And these bones can tell us a lot about how the person lived, what they looked like, how tall they were, and illnesses that they suffered. But you never look at the soil. That's wheelbarrowed away and chucked away somewhere. But what some scientists in Denmark are saying this week is that that's the wrong thing to do. That soil can actually also tell us a lot about how the humans lived and died. So when we die and we're buried, our body and the soft tissues rot away and we're left with the bones. But what they're saying is that all the chemicals and the organic compounds in our tissues go into the soil. Now, a lot of these react with the soil around it or get washed away by groundwater. But some of them, and in particular mercury, which is what they're looking at, stick around. And if you can find these elements in the soil where the soft tissue was and not in the other soil around it, you know that that's definitely come from the decomposed body. Now, what mercury used to be used for in the Middle Ages is a medicine. Now, we know today that it's pretty poisonous, but it used to be given as a medicine for lots of different illnesses. And archaeologists have long been able to test people's bones to see whether they've been given mercury, but it only tells us whether they've been given mercury years before their death. So they either have or they haven't. 
what they can do with this new soil analysis is they can look at the specific soil around where the person's lungs used to be, where their liver used to be, and where their kidney used to be. And that can tell us how recently they were given mercury and how often. So is that because the mercury is being transported around the body and depending upon how far it's got, you know how long it's had to get through the bloodstream? We know that poisons in our body, when they're taken out of our blood, they get left in our livers and our kidneys, which are the parts of our body which clean the poisons out of our bloodstream. So mercury was, was given as a medicine, as a vapour, you inhaled it, but the mercury was actually taken out of our lungs fairly quickly. So you know if you can find a high mercury concentration where someone's lungs used to be, that they were given mercury a day, a day and a half before their death. So one of the case studies that they've given is this 10-year-old child, and they found that there's a very high concentration of mercury in their kidneys, showing that they were given it quite a long time ago, but also a high concentration in their lungs. So we can presume from that that this child had a long illness, they were given mercury as a treatment, it didn't work, maybe they got better for a short period of time, but then there was another event just before they died, a day or so before, that caused them to get gravely ill and they were given a big dose of mercury to try and get them through that. It didn't work and they died. So this gives us in a far more detail than we've ever been able to know before exactly what happened in the few days before these people died. So this is quite a radically new methodology for archaeology, having to preserve this soil. I guess there's always this debate over, is it better to dig something up now or do you want to leave it for 10 years until potentially we have new and better techniques? Yes, well, a lot of that goes on in places like China. A lot of the terracotta warriors aren't being dug up at the moment because we hope that our techniques will get better in the future. But what I think people are suggesting here is, while we can think about all the wheelbarrows of soil and information that we've chucked away over the years, if we can take samples now, as long as we keep them around, even if our techniques improve in the future, we'll be able to go back and look at them. And it's really horrifying to think just how much information has been thrown away in those wheelbarrows of soil. Now, a paper I've been looking at this week is about the first measurement of the magnetic field of a black hole. Now, there's actually quite a big black hole at the centre of our galaxy. This is the nearest example of a black hole to our own sun, and it weighs millions of times the mass of our sun. Now, black holes are formed at the ends of the lives of stars, and all the mass of that star just collapses down to this very dense object, and nothing can then escape the gravity of that black hole. Now, we've got this, what we call, supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, and that actually plays quite an important role in holding our galaxy together, because you've got this tremendous amount of mass there, so it's got a positive effect then. I imagine black holes as these giant space hoovers that suck everything in and I imagine it would be a destructive force for our galaxy rather than a positive one. Yeah, I mean certainly if you get too close to a black hole that's pretty bad news. But what the galaxy needs is lots of gravitational glue to hold all of its mass together. It's whirling around, remember. And if there wasn't gravitational glue to hold it together all of this material would just fly off into space. So you need a lot of gravity to hold that together. But the question is, do black holes have magnetic fields? And that's a very difficult question to answer because you can't see magnetic fields. You've got to look for some physical phenomenon which is affected by magnetism. Why do we think black holes might have magnetic fields? Well, we think stars have quite strong magnetic fields. Our own sun, for example, has quite a strong magnetic field. And that's what creates sunspots and much of the really violent structure we see on its surface. And it would seem odd to imagine that when stars like the Sun collapse, that that magnetic field is just going to go away. But if these black holes have magnetic fields, that's actually quite important for how they behave with their environment. 
Because if you've got material spiralling into a black hole, that material gets very hot and it enters a state that we call ionised material. It starts to glow red hot. The protons and electrons are stripped apart. And then those charged particles feel magnetic forces. So if this black hole has a strong magnetic field, that's going to affect how the charged material is falling into it. And if we want to understand how black holes suck up material from their environment, we need to understand those magnetic fields that will really produce quite a strong force on the environment. So how do you measure it then? Do you have to send in some sort of satellite on a suicide mission to get close enough to measure it before it gets sucked in? I mean, the problem is that the centre of our galaxy is tens of thousands of light years away. So it's a very difficult environment to go and probe. But if you can find a physical phenomenon which is affected by magnetism, you can look at how that phenomenon changes in the region of the central part of the galaxy. Now, the technique that Rolf Ito used in his paper in Nature this week was to look at stars called pulsars, which are formed at the ends of the lives of stars. They're very compact, and they produce beams of radiation out of their magnetic poles. And those beams of radiation, it so happens, are polarised. So this is like when you wear Polaroid sunglasses and light can oscillate in two different directions and you're only letting through light that oscillates in one direction. But if that light then travels through a medium where there's A, a magnetic field, and B, lots of charged particles, this is basically the environment you have around a black hole, then that plane of polarisation starts to rotate. It's an effect called Faraday rotation. And by looking at how much it's rotated you can tell how much magnetic field was there. Now, until recently, we haven't been able to find any pulsars which are really close to the central black hole, probably because there's so much stuff there, it's actually quite hard to see what's going on. But this team at the Max Planck Institute in Bonn have now found a pulsar, and they've got very strong evidence it seems to be very close in to the centre of the galaxy. And so they've looked at the light of this pulsar, looked at the Faraday rotation of its light, And from that, they've inferred this black hole actually has quite a strong magnetic field. And now that we've got a number on that black hole, we can refine our models much better of how material behaves spiralling into that black hole. And so we can understand how black holes accrete material from their environment much better. That's fascinating that you can analyse something so far away, not by looking directly at it, but by something just nearby it. Now, you took me out stargazing a little bit earlier this week to look at something very special that's been reaching its peak this week, and that's the annual Perseid meteor shower, which are hundreds of shooting stars. But what are shooting stars? And if you don't have your own astronomer on hand to take you out looking, what's the best way to observe them? Here's Dave Ansell and Alex Parkinsmith with this week's Quick Fire Science. Shooting stars or meteors are streaks of light in the night sky that move rapidly and usually last for no more than a second or two. They appear when tiny pebble-sized pieces of space rock collide with the Earth's atmosphere, compressing the air in front of them and heating it up. They are moving at tens of kilometres a second, so they can heat up to over 1,700 degrees Celsius, which ionises the air and forms a glowing fireball. Shooting stars can be seen every few minutes on any night. But at certain times of year, many more are seen as the Earth travels through the trails of debris left behind by comets. Meteors that appear during these showers appear to shoot out of a particular direction in the sky. This is because they're all travelling in the same direction along the comet's orbit. Meteor showers each have unique characteristics that depend upon the size and speed of the debris left behind by particular comets. The Perseid shower is one of the best known because it reliably produces around 80 meteors an hour, some of which are very bright. If you're going out to observe, you don't need any special equipment 
Just find a comfortable spot, stare at the sky and wait. But don't forget that it will take a few minutes for your eyes to adapt to the dark. Find the darkest place you can and if the moon's up, try and hide it behind a building. If you're really lucky, you might see a fireball, exceptionally large meteors that can be as bright as the moon and leave glowing trails behind them that persist for up to a minute. Though don't wish for too much, a meteorite hit near the town of Chelyabinsk in Siberia this February, weighing about 10,000 tonnes, the shockwave from which smashed over 7,000 windows, injuring at least 1,500 people. That was Dave Ansell and Alex Parkin-Smith. Now, to take a look at what else has been in the news, we're joined now by Emma Stoy from Chemistry World magazine. Emma, what's caught your eye? Well, this is all about camouflage, so perhaps it's more about what hasn't caught my eye this week. A group of scientists at the University of California in Irvine have developed a material that is invisible to infrared cameras. Now, they've done this using a protein taken from squids. So squids are very good at camouflage. They can change colour, they can blend into their background. And this is because they've got a layer of skin cells with this protein called reflectin in And this essentially acts kind of like a mirror, so it reflects light waves. And the squids alter the way it reflects the waves by altering the sort of the shape of these cells containing reflectin. Now, the interesting thing about reflectin is that if you extract this protein, it actually reflects a lot more radiation apart from just visible light. It can reflect infrared, and this is what interested this team. So the military, we see all these camouflage clothing and a lot of effort goes into disguising buildings and things like that. Is infrared the thing that we've yet to tackle? Is that the thing that we're really interested in here? Absolutely. So we're quite good at visual camouflage. You've got all your camouflage gear, camouflage makeup. But the problem is it's very difficult to hide from an infrared camera because infrared detect basically heat. So even if someone's very well camouflaged against say you've got a foliage background if you point an infrared camera on them they're emitting a lot more heat than the trees so they're going to stick out like a sore thumb against the trees so I think what the idea is here is to develop a sort of infrared reflecting paint that you could cover somebody in and then that would reflect the infrared of the surroundings and just mimic that signature so that it'd be much harder to detect with an infrared camera so you talked about this reflecting being put into bacteria. So would this infrared reflecting paint need to contain all these bacteria that would need to be a living paint, as it were? You're really only using the bacteria to what's called recombinantly express that protein. So basically you're, you're manufacturing that protein outside the squid because I don't think it would be particularly pleasant to try and coat yourself in squid skin. So what this group had done was try and create their own sort of simplified version of the squid skin so they've taken this protein they've coated it onto what's essentially a glass slide with some graphene oxide underneath it which is this dark layer which provides a better contrast and then they found ways to poke it around basically to kind of chemically change that protein and alter the kinds of wavelengths of light it can reflect and so if you apply various stimuli to this protein It'll change its shape, so it'll swell up into essentially what's a layer of jelly, really. And they found eventually that if you put concentrated acetic acid vapour, basically vinegar, onto it, it swells up enough to reflect infrared long wavelength radiation. And you can tune it so you can alter how much it swells up and can get the level of infrared reflectance just right so that it blends into 
whatever level its surroundings are emitting. So that sounds great, but you do have to spray yourself with jelly and then spray yourself in the eye with vinegar? Yes. I mean, it's not ideal at the moment. At the moment, it's more of a sort of proof of concept. In terms of painting yourself with the jelly, in a way that's kind of useful because then you have a sort of a washable, biodegradable material that you're doing this with and kind of non-toxic. But the vinegar would definitely be a problem. I think what they're looking at now is to find a way of doing this, which is a bit more like the squid. So using a, a mechanical, perhaps, or an electrical stimulus to tune these infrared reflective properties rather than a chemical one. Emma, thank you very much. That was Emma Stoy from Chemistry World magazine. Now, Kate, you've got a riddle for us. What's this? Yes, I have. So what can David Beckham tell us about playing the piano? I'm not sure he's a very noted concert pianist, is he? Well, I don't know if his keyboard skills are as good as his free kicks, but in this case, it's all about his name. And that's because David Beckham is a really good example of co-articulation. Now, that's something that we find in speech, where basically we change the sounds that we produce based on the sounds that have come just before and just afterwards. So if I say his two names separately, David and Beckham, you can hear that I say a D on the end of David, like there should be. But if I say his whole name together, David Beckham, I'm actually saying David Beckham. I'm missing off the D and doing a B instead. And I can see you guys practising here in the studio to see if it's, I'm, I'm telling the truth. And do have a go at home. Listen very, very carefully. Slow yourself down and see what actual sounds you're producing. And you will find that you're actually mispronouncing it. But we don't notice because we're so used to it. Essentially, our muscles are trying to move so fast that we're ahead of ourselves by the time that we start to pronounce the sound. So we've known for a really long time that this happens in our speech. But what scientists of Minnesota have done is they've had a look at 10 piano players, some of them amateur and some of them professional. And they've asked them to play 14 pieces of music for them. And while they've been playing, they've been measuring a couple of things. How hard they've been hitting the keys, how closely they stick to a metronome, to a timing device. And also they've been putting electrodes on their hands to look at the muscle activity. And they've been finding that as they play the piano, they do exactly the same thing. They use co-articulation. And how they play the notes depends on the notes that have come just before and just afterwards. So obviously, if you're changing how hard you're hitting the notes or the fluency or the rhythm with which you're playing it, you play the notes in a slightly different way. Exactly the same thing is happening. So that means if you're plodding along at home playing the piano, sometimes you learn just by pressing the individual keys one after another. And it doesn't quite sound like the tune that you're trying to play at home. You're trying green sleeves and it's sort of sounding a bit ploddy. Now, that's probably because you're not doing the same co-articulation that piano players are when they become fluent. You're playing the notes individually with exactly the same force and same rhythm. And playing them together, adjust the way we, we play it, makes it sound more fluent. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've discussed this week, the transcripts and references are online at nakedscientist.com news. Now, in past times, if your heart stopped beating, that probably meant that you wouldn't live to tell the tale. But modern medical techniques mean that many heart attack patients survive, and those who've been that near to death often say that they experience bright lights or other strange phenomena. Until now, doctors have struggled to understand why, but Gino Bordigin looked into the question in a paper in PNAS this week. In the literature, what I find is 10 to 20% of cardiac arrest survivors have their near-death experiences. There are various kinds. They're not all identical, but there are some common threads, uh, such as uh, seeing bright light. 
But I even think that that number is underestimation because a lot of people are afraid to speak up about their experiences. They're afraid to be ridiculed. They're not convinced it's really supernatural, but yet really science hasn't provided any answers. And uh, I think I might be biased, but I think our study might be really the first attempt, and then I'm sure many more will follow. How do you go about investigating near-death experiences? Because obviously when a human is having a near-death experience, we've normally got other things to worry about than measuring their brainwaves. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if I know somebody's about to have near-death experiences, the first instinct is to save them rather than to stick electrodes in their brain. So I think to do that kind of studies for individuals with cardiac arrest is really tough uh, unless you know somebody's going to have a pre-scheduled brain operation and we could perhaps give them EEG electro recording just in case that patients, when they wake up, they report some kind of near-death experiences. I think those might be the kind of more feasible studies one could perform in the future if there are a sufficient number of patients who actually have uh, are available for neurosurgeons to gather data from. So until we can get those human subjects, what subjects did you use in this study and how did you go about looking at this phenomenon? Well, rodents are gendered animal models for our studies, whether it's uh, rats and mice, and that is just a reality of today's scientific research. So what we did is to give them anesthetics and make sure they're not sensing any pain, and then we uh, gave them lethal injection to the heart to stop the heart during this whole time, we monitor their brain activity by placing six electrodes in distant parts of the brain. And the results were all published in the paper. And far from the brain going quiet after death, it actually became quite active. Exactly. So that's what actually we're really surprised to find. Measurable activity is all we were predicting. Maybe something comparable to the levels that you would see when animals awake. But what we were really surprised by is how high those activities were. In fact, they're five to eight times higher during the near-death state than the waking state. So I think then I uh, really remembered the inhuman near-death experience is one of the very common description of experience is the realer than real, hyper-vivid, hyper-lucid. I mean, to the patients we experience them, I mean, they seem to be extremely real. So I think the realness of that perhaps is reflected by these measures that we provided. And that is still not clearly confirmed. And we need many scientists to get involved in these kind of studies so we have a more uh, advanced understanding of this phenomenon. Was any particular areas of the brain involved in this activity? Like if someone saw a bright light, was the vision at parts of our brain involved in this activity? Well, initially, since we hear a lot about bright light, my first instinct is, ah, the visual cortex must be highly activated. In fact, maybe visual cortex is the only part that's activated. That's what I thought naively initially. But I was surprised by how the entire brain seems to be participating in this amazing event, the electrical oscillation, not just occipital areas, which is the visual cortex. I mean, there is a unique sequence of events that every single animal demonstrates. There's different frequency at the different time period during this 30-second cardiac arrest. So initially, it's at a very narrow band of high-frequency activities, and then uh, eventually culminated really in the highly activated, uh, not only 
in terms of the power density, but it's also in the coherence, which is a synchronized firing of distant parts of the brain, mainly in the gamma range. So the gamma is actually expand huge range in this case, anywhere from 20 to 25 hertz all the way up to 250 hertz that were investigated in our studies. Does this activity tell us anything about why these near-death experiences might happen? Some of us might presume that if the brain's going without oxygen, it would just shut down very quietly. Do we know why? Is the brain having like a last hurrah, a last gasp before it lands out oxygen? <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that comment. But I think perhaps since we see it in rats, and I predict we're going to see that in humans in the future, my guess, this is really brain's built-in defense against a lack of oxygen, lack of glucose. We all know that the brain is very plastic. So if you do something to damage the brain, to injure the brain, the brain actually mounts a defense against that injury and insult. So I think this is perhaps is one built-in mechanism against external threat. And this lack of oxygen, glucose, may be just one of the ultimate threat to brain survival. That was Dreamo Borchardin from the University of Michigan. So that's all we've got time for here in Cambridge, but now back to Chris Smith and Victoria Gill, who are in sunnier climes on the west coast of Australia. Hello, we're joining you from Murdoch University in Perth, where we've come to participate in Australia's National Science Week. So we thought we'd also take the opportunity to talk to some of the scientists who work here too. Perth's in the southwest of the country. It's one of Australia's, and in fact the world's, most isolated cities. It's thousands of kilometres from here to any other major centre, but it is beautiful and supposedly also the sunniest city in the world. Perth sits on the Swan and the Canning Rivers, and it's home to about two million people. The major local industries are mining, winemaking and agriculture. This region's also a research powerhouse. Part of the world's most powerful telescope, the Square Kilometre Array, is being developed and coordinated from here. And Perth also has its own Nobel Prize winner in Barry Marshall, who co-discovered the bacterium Helicobacter pylori as the cause of stomach ulcers, famously giving himself a dose of the stuff. But a major priority for Western Australia is sustainable food production. And faced with some of the worst soils in the world and a changing climate, scientists here are investigating how to improve soil fertility by growing legumes that put nitrogen into the ground. Most native legumes here are laced with toxins, so animals, including sheep, can't eat them. But it's not just a simple case of bringing in desert-adapted species from other countries. I'm Professor John Howson. I'm at the Centre for Rhizobium Studies at Murdoch University. The end game of our research is sustainable food production. We focus on food production from legumes, which are a very special group of plants that take nitrogen out of the air and with the help of bacteria in the roots called rhizobium, break the closely bonded atoms of nitrogen gas and turn them into protein. And so to deliver sustainable agricultural production in infertile soils, the overwhelmingly best way is through legume cultivation along with the right rhizobia, the bacteria in the roots, and that's what we do inside this glasshouse. If you'd like to come and have a look, Chris. Let's do it. We're exposed here very heavily to a changing climate. One of the most important impacts is the rain is falling in different times of the year and in different amounts at those times, and it's actually affecting our legume growth. One of the things we're doing here is trying to select new legumes that are already adapted 
to those changing environmental circumstances. We've collected them from environments around the world that we think we are transitioning towards, Chris. We're collecting the rhizobia that goes with them and screening both of those components for adaptation to the Western Australian environment. And in this glasshouse, we do experiments where we match particular strains of rhizobium and give it to the plant, which is the legume. So you can't just have any old rhizobial bacteria with any old plant then? No. It's a very sophisticated genetic relationship between legume and rhizobium. So you have to get those two sets of genes perfectly together to fix this nitrogen into proteins in the roots. So if I take a plant from one country and move it to Australia, because the bacteria that it needs in the soil to grow in that environment are not in Australia, it's not going to grow. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right, Chris. Although Australia has a high number of legumes, their rhizobia are completely incompatible with most of the food legumes that are found elsewhere in the world. So when we bring legumes into Australia and try and domesticate them or try and grow them, we have to bring the rhizobia in as well. And then we're faced with the really big challenge of matching that rhizobia to the soil that the whole farming system is going to be put into. Because the bacteria are fussy. If you put them in the soil, they don't necessarily like it. Absolutely. Um, Most of the soils in this state are the worst soils in the world in terms of being infertile, unable to hold water, unable to hold nutrients. It's a very difficult background to introduce new bacteria into. Most of the legumes that have been developed around the world for agriculture have been developed in more fertile soils. So they struggle when they get to Western Australia and so do their rhizobium. So are you then trying to find a combination of bugs that will go well with the plants and will go well with the soil? Is that the challenge? That's exactly the challenge because when you start with the bugs, not all of them have the genetic machinery to fix nitrogen perfectly. So we have to first screen the bugs for those that are capable of high levels of nitrogen fixation. Once we've got a cohort of those bugs, we then take them to the field and over a period of several years, we look at how well they can persist and colonise our soils year in, year out. So talk us through these experiments, because you have a whole raft of plants growing in front of us, some of which look healthier than others. Yeah. This is actually an experiment trying to match a strain of rhizobium that will fix nitrogen optimally with these bean plants. We have a pot of very infertile soil. We've added all the uh, nutrients that we need for the legume growth except nitrogen, And we've added different strains of the rhizobia to select the ones that are going to fix nitrogen best. If you move over here to the right, many of these pots hold beans that are rather short, they're yellow, the leaves are dropping off, they're going brown. That's a symptom of a poor rhizobium in symbiosis with this particular bean. Now on your left here, Chris, you can see some really dark green beans. They're healthy, there's not a spot on them. They've got a very good strain of rhizobium. Let me show you what these look like. I'm going to pull one of these plants out of the pot. You can see these big round blobs on the roots, about the size of a thumbnail. That's a nodule. Now I'm going to scrape that nodule open with my fingernail, and you'll see inside that nodule a beautiful red piece of plant tissue that actually looks like a nice steak. It's that red. Mm, it does. Well, that red is leg haemoglobin. It's the same sort of protein that we have in our blood called haemoglobin, and it carries oxygen. The enzyme that the 
bacteria uses to break that tightly bonded nitrogen molecule is sensitive to oxygen. So the plant soaks up all the available oxygen using that yes. leg hemoglobin. Yes, this bright red leg hemoglobin soaks up the oxygen out of the air and trickles it back into the nodule where it's used by the rhizobium for respiration, but it's in not in great enough quantity to denature the nitrogenase enzyme. And if I were to zoom in on this nodule with a microscope, where would the bacteria be? Okay, so the, the bacteria are located in special pockets called symbiosomes that the nodule cell forms specifically for the rhizobium. So once you have this genetic conversation between rhizobium and plant working well, the symbiosome will develop and form a beautiful little house for the rhizobium that then becomes a nitrogen production factory. Just mind yourself on this fence. It's to keep the bandicoots out and the rabbits out of the, um, the plot area. My name is Ron Yates and I'm from the Department of Agriculture and Food in Western Australia. We're at the back of Murdoch University. Uh, this is our little trial plot and this is where we test some of our legumes that we brought from overseas. What are we looking at? What we're looking here is Lebecchia ambiguum. It's a perennial legume from the Western Cape of South Africa. It's uh, very interesting to us because it comes from a, a very dry, arid environment and we think it has potential to grow in Western Australia. Very thin, spindly stems, very low leaf area, looks like a thing I would describe as a succulent with lots of nice yellow flowers on the top in, in long thin spears. Yes, just the habit of the plant, it looks very drought adapted. Thin leaves, so less transpiration and less water loss from the plant. Most of the growing points under the ground, which makes it very adaptable to grazing pressure, mainly sheep in, in Western Australia. Were I to put a fork into the ground, and I'm not going to do that, don't worry, and dig this up, what would I see? What you'd see is this big taproot, at least three metres. Three metres? Three metres. This is not a very big plant. No, but most, most of its energy uh, in the first two years goes into its root system. And this is, I suppose, a metre across. How much nitrogen can that fix? One tonne of effectively nodulated legume is equivalent to... Uh, 65 kilograms of urea or in another way is 20 units of nitrogen. And to put that another way, to make fertilisers artificially has a very high carbon cost. We have to use fossil fuels, don't we? So there must be a carbon saving of doing this. Yes, the artificial way of making nitrogen, one tonne of fossil fuel makes one tonne of urea. That leads to a lot of emissions of particular CO2. You're doing field trials with this now. When are we going to see this going out there into the wheat belt and enriching land for farmers so they're not spending their hard-earned cash on boosting the carbon dioxide level of the atmosphere? It all depends. Um, we'd probably have to get a company on board to produce the seed and then uh, there'd be another company that produced the inoculant and then the next thing is, of course, cost. And the farmers would have to see that cost-effective to grow this plant. Now, what about the environmental impact? Because no country knows the cost of bringing in things from overseas better than Australia. This is a sort of double whammy because it's a, a non-native species and you're also rearing bacteria, which are not going to be natural bacteria that would naturally be in the soil. They're bacteria that are right for this plant, aren't they? Yes, there's lots of hurdles 
in getting uh, plants and their bacteria into Australia. Luckily we've gone through these hurdles for this plant. The big problem that we do worry about is it coming a pest or a weed. This plant has ticked the box that we believe and they believe that it's not going to become a problem. Ron Yates and before him Murdoch University's John Howison. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with a special edition from Perth with me Chris Smith and with Victoria Gill. Now Perth sits very close to the coast, right on the estuaries of its two rivers. And where seawater meets freshwater, the environment is extremely dynamic for the fish that live in the estuary and ultimately for the people who want to catch them. A team of researchers from Murdoch University is studying one of the most prized and relied upon estuary catches, black bream. They're tagging and tracking the fish to find out what happens to them as the amount of fresh water decreases. As years of drought continue across Australia, this work could show how we can expect these environments and the animals that live in them to respond. I joined the team on a scientific fishing trip in the Perth suburbs. So I'm standing on the boat ramp looking at the beautiful wide Canning River. It's looking like a mill pond at the moment. It's a gorgeous afternoon. And I'm with Joel Williams from Murdoch University. What exactly are we going to do today? So today we're going to take the boat out and we're going to go about 500 metres upstream the Canning River and uh, we're going to do some seine netting to collect black brim. Why black bream in particular? Why is this species of such interest to your research? Well, it's such a unique species. Black brims are a member of the Sparidae family. It's unique in that it completes its entire life cycle within an estuary, and it's also a highly popular fish with the recreational anglers. They like to target and eat them. Today we're going to be going out tagging some new fish. We haven't tagged that many fish yet because it's the start of the program, but there's every chance we may catch a tagged fish. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's take the boat out and get going. No worries. <laughs> That's the first time it's ever not started. <laughs> Take two. During the day, they're probably sitting either in the deeper waters, deeper than two metres, or they're hanging around snags or trees or reeds. And then during dusk, they come out into the sand flats and into the shallows to start feeding. That's obviously when the best time to go fishing is, and that's why we're out now. That was perfect landing. <laughs> Okay, Joel, so we've stopped by the bridge and there's a tiny little beach. So what's special about here that you think it might be good to catch fish? So this is one of our seasonal sampling sites that we come to each season. We were here early in the week and we know we caught some fish here, so hopefully we're going to catch some fish again. What we have is a 40-metre seine net, which is a net that we start on the shore and then using the boat we take the net out as far as we can and then do a big arc. Two people haul the net in and hopefully we'll have some brim that we'll be able to tag. Nice size. You can see we've got some fish. <laughs> How many do you normally get in a net this size? When we did this site last time, I think we got about 60 brim and probably about 30 sea mullet as well. And is it that it's the mullet that are jumping? You can see a lot of them. that are jumping. <laughs> <laughs> the smart ones are jumping over the net. So what have we got? Brim. So we've got some black brim here. Uh, we've also got the sea mullet, which some people like to eat as well. And then we've got a toadfish. Yeah, the ones making the so the, the, sound. the big flat ones are the black bream. The, the ones are your, sort of your stereotypical fish shape, the silver colour with that fish shape. They're the black bream. The long slender ones, they're the sea mullet. Then the, the toadfish, or they look similar to the puffer fish that you may have seen on Finding Nemo. Yeah. <laughs> the ones that puff up. <laughs> These toadfish do the same thing. They puff up as well and make funny sounds. 
basically what we're trying to find out is how these fish are using their estuaries. The Swan Canning estuary is quite a large estuarine system. By tagging the fish, if the fish gets captured either by us or by recreational fishermen, we can tell where that fish has moved over time. And what do you find out by the movement? So we're particularly interested because estuaries, the end users of freshwater flows, so they're particularly vulnerable to climatic events such as drought, flooding, particularly climate change. So Australia's gone through a large period of drought, especially in Western Australia here. It's incredibly dry. We've been getting dramatically less freshwater flowing into our systems. So the whole biophysical structure of the estuary has changed. The salinity has changed. The dissolved oxygen has changed. And so basically we want to know how these fish are moving throughout the systems under these change conditions. And it can also help us predict how future climate change may impact the distribution and how these fish are swimming around the estuaries. So what happens now? So basically we're going today we're going to use what we refer to as T-bar tags. We have a tagging gun, which is actually the same tagging gun that retailers use to put the price tag on clothes. <laughs> that annoying little plastic thing that you try and bite off with your teeth. Basically that's the same thing that we're, we're inserting into the fish because it makes a really good anchor into the muscles of the fish. The tags contain a, a unique fish number and a phone number. So if somebody catches a fish, they can call that number, they can tell us the ID of that fish and if that fisherman releases the fish again and it gets tagged, we can follow where it's moved. So first thing, we measure the fish because if the fish gets recaptured, we like to measure it again to see how much it's grown. So this fish is 300 mil. Take a fish, take a fish with a firm grip so that it doesn't kick. And then this is the dorsal fin here. What we do is we stick the needle or the tagging gun just underneath the scales and we actually remove one scale and then we go back in and then just like giving an injection, we go in at a 45 degree angle, insert it, and you can feel it go between the fin rays, pull the trigger, and then remove the needle, and then the tags. And that's in. it, and they've just got their little ID and number on there. You can feel it's uh, secured there, and then that's in a, as least protrusive position as possible, just underneath the fin there, and uh, the fish should swim away happily ever after. Okay. Have you gathered information from this particular species that's shown you how they are responding to environmental change, and particularly to climate change and the, the drought that's been going for so long in Australia? Yeah, so I've, I've actually originally came from Melbourne University, where I recently completed my PhD, and as a part of that project we did a similar study using what we call acoustic telemetry or acoustic tags. That's where we surgically implant a transmitter. It's about the size of a AAA battery, and then we place receivers throughout the estuary, and so we can basically know exactly where these fish are at any given time throughout the year. And what I found is that freshwater flow was so low due to the drought that saline water had moved a long way upstream and so had the fish. So apart from changing where these fish are and then maybe changing where the recreational fishermen want to catch them, what other larger effects could that be having on the ecology of this estuary? The fish, especially during the spawning season, are moving upstream. Upstream, the river channel is a lot smaller, which means that the area of spawning habitat is potentially reduced, whereas previously they may have been spawning in these in the estuary basins where you have these basically large lakes, which increase the size of the, the spawning area. So they're essentially being funneled by the water conditions changing and pushing them upstream into a smaller area. Exactly. There's other impacts such as with less freshwater flow, the amount of dissolved oxygen, which is crucial for fish to survive, particularly at early stages such as the egg and larval stage, if we don't get freshwater flow, then we have these deeper pools of water that become really anoxic and they become quite toxic to live in. 
you're looking particularly at the bream in this study, but are they sort of a, a signal species for what's happening at a larger environmental scale and to other species? Absolutely. In southern Australian estuaries, they're the ideal fish, but there are many other species such as your King George whiting, cobbler, tailor, snapper, that all move into these estuaries. These are all fish that we like to eat. They're good table fish, and these are particularly fish that are vulnerable to the effects of climate change and anthropogenic or human disturbances. We've been here, we've, we've tagged a good few fish and you're, you're now going to get the fishermen involved and hopefully get a lot of these tags and really get some movement patterns. What do you want to do with all of that data? What's the next step in this study? So the Swan Canning River, which we visited today, is only one of our estuaries that we're, we're interested in. We actually have seven estuaries spread out through Western Australia, from north of Perth all the way down to the southwest corner. And all these estuaries have different biophysical structures and they're all are going to be impacted by climate change and drought in different ways. And so what we're aiming to do is collate all this data and start making predictions of how factors such as salinity, dissolved oxygen, estuary types and how climate change is going to impact on the biology and ecology of these fish. This data can now be used by fisheries managers and catchment managers to help manage this fish species and protect it uh, into the future. So I guess you've got a lot more bream to tag in order to generate that big data set, so I better let you get on. (laughs) No worries, thank you very much. (laughs) Joel Williams there from Murdoch University, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists with a special edition from Perth. Now, someone who knows all about environmental change in this part of Australia is Sabrina Hahn. She's a renowned gardener who works with some of the people in Australia who live closest to the land, the indigenous communities of the Kimberley. In this vast and truly remote region of northwestern Australia, where communities are regularly cut off when dirt roads are flooded in the wet season, Sabrina is creating vegetable gardens. Her work with the indigenous communities aims to preserve and build the knowledge of native edible plants and the traditional bush tucker. She's also bringing western vegetables and modern gardening methods to the Kimberley to help the people, and particularly the children there, grow their own food something that's hugely important when you're a four-hour drive on dirt roads from the nearest town. I guess for me it's a sharing of knowledge and getting hold of that knowledge of the elders before it's actually lost. So I share my knowledge of growing vegetables, Western vegetables, to improve the health of the children. They share their knowledge of the food that they used to use constantly and, and go out and harvest... We know that unless the young children in these communities have access to fresh food, particularly the green vegetables, that it really affects the long-term health. But what's emerged now with the collection of their bush tucker foods is they've discovered just how high those foods are in proteins and vitamins. So that's an essential part of their diet. And, of course, culturally, the women and the children go out bush and they used to walk for miles and miles and harvest the food and then bring it back to the whole community. So the intention of the vegetable gardens is to to share the food in the same way that culturally they share all their bush tucker food. So we've actually incorporated both the bush tucker and western food, like all the greens and tomatoes. So it's a real, you know, the food gardens are now a conduit into culture. 
can you describe some of the types of vegetables that you can grow in that environment and then are native to that landscape? There's a white currant bush, which is a bush that just gets thousands of white little berries on them. There's another tree called the gubbinge tree, which has 60... The gubbinge tree. Yeah, gubbinge. <laughs> That's a great word. <laughs> it has um, 68 times more vitamin C than oranges, and the kids absolutely love that. There's another one called marul, and it's like a little native plum, like a small fruiting plum. We do this cross-cultural cooking where we'll use the fruit from the gubbinge and put it in stir-fries with the mud crab because it has this, it's almost like a tangerine tart flavour. It's great in cooking. We're talking about cooking. Can you share your favourite cross-cultural recipe with us? <laughs> I think mud crab would have to be my favourite recipe. We use chilies, but there's a lot of tamarind trees that grow around. They're not native, but they grow around the area. So with a little bit of tamarind seed and the nuts from the gubbinge tree, and then you add the marul, the black plum at the very, very end, which is a little bit like an olive, I suppose. It gives us this really tangy sort of... Asian flavours and there's a native lemongrass that grows all through there and it has the most beautiful subtle lemon flavour and that's gorgeous in fresh fish. Sounds delicious. I want to try it. (laughs) So while we've been here for National Science Week, we've been talking to quite a few researchers. And one thing that keeps coming up when we talk to people that work outdoors in the environment here in Western Australia is the drought. How much environmental change have you seen whilst you've been working out there? It's really noticeable. And I know that lots of the older people I talk to in communities say that the wet season is changing, the timing of the wet season is changing. And because Indigenous people are so culturally linked to country, they can understand that when there's a difference in the wet season, it actually changes the time when the bush tucker comes on and it also is affecting the oceans. So they know when the dugongs and the turtles come through, that time is changing now. So it's having an impact not only on the fruiting of their traditional bush tucker plants but also what's happening in the oceans so traditionally when certain wattles a certain time of flowering the oysters are the best for eating but what's happened now is they're finding that many of the oysters are actually opening up and dying and no one knows why and the wattles are flowering much much later so it's having a really big impact So as that changes, I guess the way that people who have always lived with the land very closely to the land and known its environment so, so well, that's all having to change too. So how do you see your role as somebody that studies the landscape up there and works within the landscape? How do you see your role changing as the environment shifts? I think my role now becomes very important to collect as many different species as we possibly can to bring them into community and to actually water them and fertilise them so we actually have a base of plants that are there so that we can tissue culture some of these plants or we can grow them on hotbeds in nurseries in their hundreds because eventually it will of course have a have an effect on the very few plants that are left so we need to increase that base of plants so we've got the diversity that we can keep the species going. Thank you very much Sabrina and I hope I get to try some of these recipes while I'm in Western Australia. (laughs) I hope you do you'll love it. Sabrina Hahn talking with Victoria Gill. Just time to squeeze in our question of the week now with Hannah Critchlow. 
This week, we master materials, applying a little bit of pressure to glean the answer to this. Hi, my name is Sasha Zanjani from London. Diamonds are made deep underground when carbon is subjected to high pressure and heat. Is there any way that other elements could be used to make an even harder type of diamond? I was thinking of mining on other planets where pressures would be greater due to the planet being more massive. So diamonds from the ancient Greek meaning unbreakable. They're formed naturally around the Earth's centre, where the high pressure and temperatures cause bonding between electrons of carbon atoms. This gives rise to the rigid lattice crystal carbon structure of diamond, which then travels to the Earth's surface during volcanic eruptions, delivering us with the transparent, extremely hard material we know as diamond. But could other planets produce similar substances? For the answer, we turn to Director of Research and Development at Deep Space Industries, Dr Stephen Covey. You might expect that silicon, just below carbon in the periodic table and also with four bonding electrons, would form equivalent structures. But silicon atoms are much larger than carbon atoms and don't pack as closely and thus form softer molecules. Nitrogen has a smaller covalent radius than carbon, and under super high pressures of over a million atmospheres, solid nitrogen changes from a hexagonal lattice into a cubic lattice similar to diamond and might have similar or even greater hardness. But it's difficult to beat diamond as a hard mineral. This is due to the way the carbon atoms are linked together, resulting in the highest packing density of any known substance at room temperature and pressure. But there may indeed be other ultra-hard materials formed at extremely high pressures. In February of 2009, a paper in Physical Review Letters reported that wartzite structured boron nitride may be 18% harder than diamond, and that another carbon mineral, lonsdaleite, is 58% harder than diamond. And in January of 2013, the journal Nature reported the production of ultra-hard nanotwinned cubic boron nitride by researchers from the University of Chicago, which also appeared to be harder than diamond. So if the conditions are right, then harder minerals than diamond may indeed be formed in the depths of large planets. Whether or not they are stable enough to be brought to the surface without reverting to softer forms is another question altogether. Thanks, Stephen. So mixing different molecules in the lab can produce materials harder than diamond, but we don't yet know if they would be stable enough to be produced naturally up there in space. Fizzing on, we next get effervescent over this. Hi, this is Bella, and my question is, why does a glass of fizzy drink bubble over when ice cubes are dropped into it? Have you also noticed carbonated drinks bubbling over when an ice cube is added? And if so... Why does it happen? Hannah Critchlow. And if you can help Hannah to answer our question of the week, then please send in your thoughts, comments or feedback to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists. You can join us on our website at nakedscientists.com slash forum or you can also find us on Facebook. We're back next week with another programme from Perth. The Naked Scientists is supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.